Well, hi there, folks. Jack Spirico here with another episode of the Survival Podcast. A little bit of a landmark episode today, just in numbers anyway. Episode 3100, and we're going to do another episode of Outback with Jack. Um, we always do at least one episode like this a week. Sometimes we do two, a Friday and a Monday. We don't generally do them on a Tuesday, but I just felt this vibe today. And I also needed help today. I needed help putting this show together. I like to build shows that are you know, made by the audience, so to say. And it also is easier for me because I don't have to come up with a bunch of stuff. So knowing that today was going to be kind of a big day and uh, we were going to have to run late and starting the show, I went on MeWe yesterday and said, give me topics for a show today. Quick bullet points I can lightning ground for you. And I picked 14 of about 45. And it was done on MeWe, on my personal page and the community page. And if your question or comment didn't get in there, don't feel bad. I I can't do them all. And I kind of went back and forth between the one in the group and the one on my personal page so that I didn't favor one side. We got 14. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. Uh, some homesteading stuff, some uh, bugging out stuff, some business and home security stuff. What we're not going to talk about today, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Davos, uh, stuff you're going to see on Tucker Carlson tonight, any of that stuff. We're going to focus all with solutions oriented down to the practical and the tactical today. Uh, before we do that, let's go ahead real quick and mention our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. I said we're not going to talk about crypto today, but, you know, you guys know I am a big fan of Bitcoin and some other cryptos. And I do think if you don't have Bitcoin in your portfolio, you're missing out on one of the most important assets you can have. But unlike a lot of people in that space, I don't feel uh, negative, negative toward precious metals. I think that gold and silver have a long history of being used as money. Um, I think they're a great wealth insurance program. And I think that you should have somewhere between 5% on the upper band, 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold. And I recommend that you own it, you keep it, you lock it in your own safe or, or what have you, uh, and you maintain possession of it. And that means you buy physical metal and you, you just keep it. And if you're going to do that, the beauty of silver and gold is it's the same everywhere. A silver eagle is a silver eagle. A gold eagle is a gold eagle, etc. That's the whole point. So it doesn't make sense to pay more for your metal than you should or buy from people who don't have your best interest at heart and don't do the best job of customer service. I recommend JM Bullion because they've not let my people down ever. The few times there's been a hiccup or a problem, I've always been thanked by Michael, who's the president of the company, for bringing it directly to his attention. I was approached uh, by, well, two other huge silver houses. One was Lear. Uh, uh, the other one was uh, Monex, and I told them both no because they wouldn't let me talk to anybody important enough to fix shit immediately when shit went wrong. Uh, JM's different. They ship everything for free. They support my members program uh, and uh, give discounts uh, on purchases. There's a limit to one a month and over a certain amount, but no one does discount in the silver and gold world. The margins are too small. I don't even know how they do it, but they do. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. Next up, the other precious metal, copper-jacketed lead, guys. If you are not well-stocked in ammo, all your guns are is overpriced clubs uh, or their barter items, something maybe you can sell at a, a pawn shop or to a buddy to raise some cash. They can't do what a gun is supposed to do, so you want your ammo. You want to make sure you keep it in bulk, so you want to get it from BulkAmmo.com, who also is an incredibly long-term sponsor, I think going on over a decade now. 
Uh, additionally, they do a discount for the member support brigade. So with that, let's dig on into it. Um, I'm sure there's going to be tons of questions today. We're basically wide open, except don't ask me about the situation in Ukraine or the price of Bitcoin or anything like that. Anything that's practical, down-to-earth, tactical, down-to-earth, uh, we'll cover today. Make sure you put those in all caps in the chat for those of you in the live feed today. Um, those of you that are listening to the audio, say, damn, I wish I could do this. Well, get on the Telegram channel or one of the other social media outlets that I'm on, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on get social and you'll get announcements. So you'll know this stuff's going to happen or you can always check out where tspclive.com for the next upcoming one. If I don't mess up the date, the time, et cetera, I'm actually going to be switching to military time, uh, going forward because I always forget to edit the AM PM part, uh, when I change the time on the dadgone template. Today, though, I wanted to start out with something just a little bit to share with you guys. I'm really happy to be doing a live stream and have you guys here with me today because I got to do something today that was like one of my lifetime goals. I got to, instead of interviewing Ron Paul, which I got to do about six months ago, which was a, a major thing for me, I got to be interviewed by Ron Paul on the Liberty Report. If you guys haven't seen it yet, I'll have a link in today's show notes. It'll go in the Daily Mail, et cetera. I've already shared it on social, but I was on with Ron and Chris Rossini for about 30 minutes. And, uh, it was, it was pretty, pretty damn amazing. I, I'll take this, uh, comment in the chat right now from Chase. How did you feel after being on Ron Paul Liberty Report? Great. Great. And it's, it's why we start a little bit later today. And it's why you can see those watching the video of beer here in my hand. It's kind of celebratory. I used to drink when I was miserable. I don't drink very much anymore. I drink now on a good day here and there to celebrate. And I thought we'd have a beer together. I know many of you can't do that yet, but you can have one symbolically later on uh, and raise a glass to me uh, and, and to this day because this was almost the perfect day. Not only did I get to be on the Ron Paul Liberty Report, when I got done, I went out and my grandkids and my, gran and my wife had watched it. Uh, that was pretty cool, just having them in the other room watching and then I looked out the window, and we haven't had a good rain in a very long time, and it was raining a good, steady, long, uh, ground-soaking rain. So if there could be a perfect day, maybe this was it. So let's jump on into it. Here's the stuff that I had you guys ask me about. I'm going to give first names of people who asked. I figure if you're on me, we ask, and you don't mind your first name being there, you wouldn't have it. Um, the first one, and I'm, I've abbreviated the question. Some of them were long, and I put my own little spark into them. But the first question really revolved around dealing with the cancer of self-doubt if you want to start a business. There's so many people, they want they want to do something, side hustle, some form of entrepreneurship, and they're worried that they're going to fail. Let me fix it for you. You're going to fail. So just don't worry about failing because you're going to fail. See how simple that is? Um, when I used to do sales training, I have a great big room full of people and I'd have everybody stand up and hopefully there was a even number of people. So somebody wasn't the last person out. Uh, but I'd say just turn and, and pair up and everybody look at each other. And I'd say everybody on, on this side of the room, looking at your, your, your friend on the other side of the room, say no to them, just say no. And they're all look around and just say no. And they'd finally say no. And then I would say to the person that was just told no, now you need to say no back. And if, if there's one person kind of off oddball, to say, hey, you, yeah, no, right, to make sure everybody got no said to them. And then I, I, they'd all kind of look like, what is this crazy asshole doing? And I'd say, so is anybody bleeding now? 
Does anybody bleed? Anybody need to go to the emergency room or the hospital or need some medication or uh, need to crawl up into a cupboard or something and hide like when you was anybody really injured by that experience? And they would all kind of laugh a little bit, and you'd kind of see the hemming and hawing. Okay, I get it. I get it. And uh, that's how you have to approach going into business. The entire concept of self-doubt is 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 predicated on the concept that I could go try to build this business and fail. As soon as you accept the fact that, like anything you ever did for the first time in your life, you're probably going to fail. And that doesn't mean the business itself will fail, but there will be failures into the business. It, it should take away and it should cover you and make you realize no one gives a shit. No one cares. It's not, you know, being the last kid picked for a basketball team in seventh grade and everybody's staring at you and looking at you. When you start a business, nobody really cares but you. Nobody really cares but you. And it's okay to fail. Like, let's go back to basketball. So most of y'all have probably shot a basketball through the, the, the hoop a time or two in your life, even if you're not athletic. Almost everybody has eventually picked up a basketball and shot it and hit the backboard and it went through the net and it felt good and all. I guarantee you the first time you ever tried it, it you, you probably didn't even get up to the rim, especially if you're a little bitty kid and you couldn't even reach the rim. Everything you ever did in your life, you failed at before you actually succeeded at it. Everything you ever did in your life, you failed out before you succeeded at. I'm going to tell you another secret. People that are naturally talented and, and seldom fail when they try something are the ones with the greatest fear of trying something they've never done before because they're not used to the fear, the, the feeling of failure and the full time, few times they've experienced it, they really didn't like it. So the less capable you are, the, the more immune to to, to be the pain of failure you are, the more chance you have to succeed. You see how that works? So the, the way you get past self-doubt in business is you don't put an expectation on yourself that if I don't in the first week succeed, I have failed. You, you say to yourself, how many times do I have to fail in order to succeed? And then you embrace the failure because the failure is a lesson. There's only two real ways that a teacher can actually teach. There's only, and, and there's many teachers. There's people, there's books, there's life. Life is the ultimate teacher. And you can get a student to retain and utilize information and knowledge through only two things, pleasure and pain. That's it. And all teachers who are really good prefer pleasure but no pain is a better teacher. And that doesn't mean that you beat your students with a stick in the back when they mess up. It just means that the negative is more powerful than the positive at reinforcing a lesson. Or as I say, often life is a teacher, but some people are slow learners. And slow learner has to, has to experience more pain in order to learn. So when it comes down to a business, what you do is you embrace something that you want to try and you go try it. And then look at people who you say, man, I wish I could do what they did. Look at Jack Spirico, right? Look at me and say, damn, I wish I could do what Jack did. I've had a lot of success in business, not just with TSP. I've also had a lot of failures. I've had more efforts fail than I've had succeed. And I don't care. It's okay. Michael Jordan missed more shots than he made. If you go across his whole life, right? 
Because you got to count all the practice. You got to count when he was a little kid. You got to count the total number of times he took a shot. And if you do that, you realize that failure is the path to success. And hence it need not be feared. It's the only option you have. If you're using it as an excuse because it's not really what you want to do, figure out what you really want to do and do that instead. Moving on. Okay, from Kelsey. Uh, the way I summarize this is building a real community based on individual strength and interest of the individual members of the community. Kelsey said something to the effect of, She put people in charge of the things they actually wanted to do, including putting, I think she said a 12-year-old in charge of communications, like ham radio and stuff like that, because that's what they were interested in. This is how you build community. Kelsey, you're hitting a home run. It wasn't really a question. It was more of a uh, a talking point. And I think it's one that, that bears out. And it it also helps with the big problem that people have, that they want to do everything. You're not going to do everything. You shouldn't do everything. You shouldn't try to do everything. Even if you consider yourself a polymath, even polymaths don't do everything. They just do a lot of things fairly well. That, that's, that's my goal is to be able to do a tremendous number of things well and a few things great. And the things that I don't know how to do or don't have time to do or don't want to do, find somebody else where they need doing to do them. So I have. No interest in developing ham radio skills. I don't even think it would be hard. I, I, I think I could probably take the, the manual and speed read it in a, in a, in a, in a, like a few hours and go take the test and pass it without even trying. There's so many people out there that have kind of harangued me about it. I don't even think I have to buy any gear. People would send me freaking more gear than I know what to do with. I could easily get people to mentor me and teach. I don't care. Not because I don't value the skill for those of you that are hams and you're all gnashing your hands in your teeth right now. This is the problem. We find our thing and then we want everybody to be in our thing. It doesn't mean that I don't think it's incredibly valuable. I just think there's plenty of people that already know how to do it within my community and communities. And since it's not interesting to me for my personal growth, I choose to do other things with my time. There's people that feel that way about gardening, and you might think that I want to pound gardening into them because it's such a big thing for me. No, I, I don't want to pound gardening into them any more than I wish for them to try to pound their thing into me. I dabbled in beekeeping. It was okay. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. I didn't love it, and it took time to do it right. If I wanted to do it half-assed, I'd still have bees here. But I listened to Michael Jordan with his his infamous uh, shitty beekeeper speech where he's like, they didn't ask to go in a box, but you put them in a box. Now you got to take care of them because they don't belong in a box. They belong in a tree, but you put them in a box. I'm like, well, I don't want to be a shitty beekeeper. So since I put them in the box and I don't want to do the work of keeping bees in a box happy and healthy, let somebody else do that and they can do that. This is the the philosophy that we need to develop for ourselves, but it also... The things that we most need to develop as our own inner philosophy, we, we need to develop as our external philosophy and how we treat others. Do unto others as you to have them do unto you. Uh, and, and so that means that if you want to build a happy, happy, thriving, healthy community, that you identify the interests, the talents, and the motivation in others within your community, and then you channel that. 
And if you're really lacking in something, if you don't have somebody to do a thing and no one's interested in it and no one's motivated for it, you need more people not to have somebody take up a responsibility they're not interested in fulfilling. So huge home run, Kelsey. Thanks for submitting that one today. Uh, next up today, Sandor asked about growing wetland edible plants, stocking edible water critters and things like the gabbies, which is giant crayfish they have down in Australia, et cetera. I, I did want to talk about this a little bit. I do have a coming aquatics course. I said June. It's probably more like July, August. Uh, it is being worked on every single day, and it's showing how momentous the task of assembling this is going to be. Uh, I have not actually begun filming the video that will be like this where I'm sitting behind the camera instructing, but I've already filmed like nine separate videos of just supporting video on the outdoor stuff as to how things are going to work. I have a friend who has a pretty advanced setup. Uh, filming some stuff for me as well that I, I just don't have availability to provide here. And uh, this is going to be really momentous. And it's going to allow people to build really complex, large-scale systems. But I am also going to uh, – I'm going to not leave out – how do I do this on the cheap and on the fly and on the sly? So, for instance, one of the crops that I'm growing this year, and I'm already learning it probably needs more shade – that I'm giving it because we've had some overcast days for um past few days and the plants that were, I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Uh, they've started to look better. And I have a feeling once the sun comes back full force, they're going to start looking a little unhappy again. And it's a plant called duck potato. And we do have a North American variety of it. We also have a Chinese variety, which is much larger. Uh, they grow about the size of a, a decent size, uh, small, regular in-ground potato. I did fry one of my seed potatoes just to see what they're like. They take, taste dramatically like a regular potato. I'm not big on starch, but I am big on reliable crops with calories for long term. I know some of y'all don't share my keto carnivore bent, and you need to know what to grow for yourself, right? Again, just because I feel some way doesn't mean that you feel some way. And, you know, I'm looking at this already and going, Shit, I could grow the hell out of this with like four kiddie pools in partial shade, uh, with either float valves or just fill them up, you know, once a couple, every couple of days, throw some damn minnows in there, uh, to keep the mosquitoes down or use mosquito bits. And what else could I, I grow? You know, I just realized I could grow Chinese water chestnut and Ipomere aquatica and I could do it in ground with a tire pond, uh, for something permanent. But if you're in a, situation you're going to be moving in the next few years, you can do it with stock tanks or kiddie pools. And I'm going to include that. And I think that we need, we need to think that way um, in not only being one size fits all. So that's, that's kind of on the aquatic side. I would say there is, there's about 14 really beneficial aquatic plants. Uh, there's way more, but there's like 14 that are really great aquatic plants to grow That is one of my chapters in this aquatics course. And for those of y'all that can't swing the 300 to 500 bucks, it's going to be the beautiful thing about the software I'm using made by a company called Learn Dash, um, is that you can take any module and break it out as its own course. And I'll probably take that, that chapter and make its own mini course and sell it for 30 bucks for people to get a, 
trial of me as a teacher. And those of you that that's just what you want, you'll be able to get. Um, so I would say research into the plants that you want to grow. Sandor wasn't clear if he meant doing it like I do it with these little mini ponds, you know, a few thousand gallons and up or stock tanks, or if he actually has like wetlands, marshes, et cetera, to work with. If you have that, just be careful. Uh, a lot of stuff that we grow in aquatic situations have the ability to actually become truly invasive and to choke things out and be careful what you're introducing into any area. As far as stocking things like gabbies and all, again, you have to be careful that you don't bring something into an ecosystem that can upset it. I am, I'm big on going to your state's website, seeing the stuff that's banned and considering those things as really good things to grow if they're edible and if you manage them properly, but I'm also being personally responsible. Um, I will say that I have found the single most useful critter to grow in aquatic situations for food is a catfish. And I think that you know, when he says yabbies, I'm wondering if Sandor is down in Australia. So if I say black bullhead, that may not translate for him. So your equivalent of the most prevalent, available, most widely, uh, most survival-oriented as far as its own survival catfish is probably what you can grow. There's some really cool catfish that are farmed in the Philippines, in Sri Lanka, et cetera. I don't know if they're banned in Australia. Everything's banned there. But if they're available, I would look into those as well. But catfish I have found to be remarkably resilient and tolerate a lot of problems with water quality. They tend to live longer than other fish if, if the, the, the power goes out for a while. And they tend to be delicious if you know how to cook them and really easy to process and clean. Uh, so, and they, they handle larger, uh, stocking densities than a lot of other fish, especially fin fish when I'm talking about that. Shellfish, crawfish, et cetera. I have not found that to work at small scale. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm saying I have not found it personally to work at small scale. When I talk small scale, and we're, we're talking about ponds where I say how many gallons and you know, and it's not double digits. Um, Crawfish in small ponds, shallow, large ponds, you know, so you're talking, you know, when you start using acres, even tenth of an acre, et cetera, extremely productive. And what I've found is like the places that do crawfish commercially, they just put out traps for them and they're, they're truly farming crawfish. Even if it's a natural water body, They go by in a little boat. They pull the trap out. They dump all the crawfish on a thing. They have a sorter, like almost like a like rake tines. And if the crawfish falls through and goes back in the water, he was too little. And the ones that stay, they're big enough, and they go into the collection pot. You throw new bait in the trap and stick it back in the water. And they, some of these places, you know, they're doing that on a couple acre pond, and they literally harvest every day. And they never hurt the population because they breed so well and they have a, a limit on size where they don't take them below a certain size. I think long term, I would also probably put an upper limit for breeders on anything. But I've not found any of the bivalves, mussels, et cetera, in my experience, again, small scale to be worth doing. Catfish, bluegills are the best in the southern climates. If you're in a northern climate and trout work for you, you might want to try that trout. Yellow perch are probably one of the best tasting fish on the planet. And I'm a big believer, if you're a fisherman, you're doing aquatic systems, what makes a lot of sense is the fish that are good eating that either have small size limits or no size limits, 
The beauty of having these home systems is you're out fishing, you catch some yellow perch, they're right at whatever your state's limit is or your state has no limit. They're little. They're not really worth cleaning, but you have a good aerated bucket or whatever. You take those home, you put them in your system, you grow them out, and you eat them. And so I, that's what I do. I do it with bluegills. I do it with various sunfish, and I do it with bullheads. And, and, and I might occasionally keep a channel catfish. is really you're not supposed to, but we won't talk about that. Anyway, moving on. What about improving home security when you're in bed, sleeping your brains out or away? Um, mundane and pedantic, but alarm systems are incredibly valuable. And they're not just valuable because they call the police who eventually might show up. They're valuable because when they go off, they make a lot of freaking noise and they freak people out, especially people who are trying to break in and use um, uh, using surprise and concealment and uh, not being seen to their advantage. It kind of blows the, the whole thing out of the water for them. Now, there's more and more brazen criminals who will continue to go about their business while an alarm goes off because they know response times suck. And Joe's on. We're going to get to dogs here in just a second. Uh, we really are. Um, but, yeah, a home security system is still valuable. And when you're away, at least something is known. Someone knows, and you will know usually, too, that something has happened because, You have to think about the damage immediate and long-term in this situation. So sadly, because most criminals are basically adult juvenile delinquents, a very common practice with people breaking into your home is not just to steal things, but to destroy things. That can often involve electronic things like freezers and shit being unplugged. So because they're smashing shit and tearing shit up. So at least you can have a neighbor go over and, and figure out, like, it'd be great if you didn't also lose all the meat in your deep freezer or something like that. You know, guy helps himself to a beer while he's stealing your shit because that happens and leaves the door open just to be a dick because, you know, he's a dick or he wouldn't have broken your house. So it has a lot of value in alerting the authorities, alerting you, scaring away the perpetrator letting them know that it's been happened. Video cameras are also useful because now they know that they're being seen. When you're home, your best friend is man's old, decades-old, millennia-old best friend, the dog. And I joke at times, and I'm serious when I joke, though, that if if you were to stick your arm in my window in the middle of the night and, and try to work your way into the house, I literally don't have to do anything. I have a dog that will remove your flesh from your arm. And I know what it would look like if it ever happened. I'd come out with my gun and the dog would have all four feet up on the wall trying to pull the dude in the door. And dude's either coming in the door and getting mauled or he's losing part of his arm and running away and bleeding. I'm going to say, though, this is probably not the best plan for the most people. A dog like that is a weaponized animal. And a dog is like a gun that thinks for itself and sometimes is wrong. So when people put down gun owners and say, you know, the gun is dangerous, there's no such thing as a dangerous gun. There's a dangerous person with a gun. There's a gun sitting right behind me back there. 
It's been there a long time. Y'all have seen it over and over. It has never hurt anybody. It can't do anything unless I pick it up and do a thing with it, right? It is. It will not act on its own. It requires a human to cause it to act. Once you have trained a dog to bite a human being, there is always a case in which that dog may bite a human being in error. And so it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of training, and a lot of responsibility to go into that realm with a dog. And I do not recommend it if you're the kind of person that does things part way. And people will say, but any dog can bite anybody. There's a difference in a dog that will bite and let go and a dog that will commit when it's time to commit. So most people, your home security dog is a very yappy, noisy, upset, pissed off dog. And it can be a little bitty dog. You know, a couple of Pomeranians are cute and all running around. I mean, those little dogs, Pomeranians, Chihuahuas, uh, Basin, not Basinjis, they're Barkless. I'm trying to think of the, all the really expensive ones that look like a mop. Not lops of opsas, those things too, but, uh, uh, some of the M, I can't think of what they're called now, but my, my buddy David, his wife owns one. Um, all of those little yappy dogs, they have like a complex and, uh, man, I can't remember the name of the Maltese, right? I think it's Maltese. I don't know. Whatever the hell they are. These little mop dogs. Chihuahua dogs and stuff. Yorkies, too. Yeah, Silky Terrier is a little bit bigger. Um, they have that Napoleon thing going on, and they just lose their shit when something's going on. This isn't really good when you're away, but it is good when you're asleep. And this is why I'm a big fan of training, at least if you have multiple dogs, training at least some of your dogs to kind of, when you go to bed, they don't go sleep in your bed. They don't sleep at the foot of your bed. They sleep out kind of in the living room where the, the front and back door is. And they can hear what you cannot hear, and they go absolutely batshit crazy in the middle of the night. Well, this blows the whole element of surprise for the would-be intruder. Most, not all, most intruders do not want to break into a home while you're there, especially at night, because they fear you shooting them more than they fear the police, unless you live in, like, L.A. or something, or San Francisco. In that case, your solution is move. And I'm not even kidding anymore. Um, so usually when somebody breaks into a home in the middle of the night, it you, again, usually, no hard rules here. It's they thought there was no one there. They've made a misjudgment, and they thought they could sneak in and steal a bunch of shit and get out. And when that dog goes ape shit, oh, shit, somebody's home. I need to get out of here. Those are my basics. Um, I am coarse and for being an armed citizen, but I'm also for training and knowledge and planning and what to do. And people like to watch TV and you see the guy moving through the house with his low and ready position. It's not even a low and ready position properly done or whatever. I'm telling you, assuming you don't have like an intruder, you're on one side of the house and your kids are on the other side of the house because then you got to go meet the threat. Assuming you're alone or everybody's on one side of the house, the best thing you can do during a home invasion is hole up back to the wall and wait. Because that way you have the advantage. The person's coming to you. You know your house. You have your ears, your eyes. You have the ability to light that person up visually or otherwise. And in most situations, that's where uh, you, you're better off. The biggest thing is thinking about it. 
looking at your weaknesses. What is attractive about your home? This is probably the biggest thing. You need to get out of your house, go out to where your house can be viewed as it is viewed from the street, and say to yourself, self, if I was a criminal, would I invade this house? And if so, what about this house makes me want to? And then make that go away. When you're out on the street and you look at a, a giant high fence with barbed wire on it, and a bunch of big Bow Wows bouncing around, and it looks very redneck, and it looks like there's people in there that will shoot me. I'm not saying no one will ever break in here. I'm just saying that there's a lot of places a lot more attractive than that to break into. And so the, the, the next line of defense is kind of the outside of the home. And if where you live, it is practical to do a perimeter fence around the home, even if it's not around the entirety of the property, is incredibly valuable because it removes the whole, oh, I was just lost in asking for directions. And I'm telling you, if you do employ the services of larger bow-wows, it is almost instant for any dog of a significant size, especially if you get out of the dogs that just love human beings uh, and strangers, the ones that don't know what a strange, like a, you know, I'm not saying a gold retriever or a yellow lab won't bite. I'm just saying they're a lot less likely to be aggressive toward a stranger than something like a German shepherd or a Chow, or an Akita, uh, or a Doberman, or a Rottweiler, or a Pit Mix, or something like that. And when you put a dog like that in a perimeter-fenced environment, there's very little training necessary to teach that dog that humans go through gates, which are open when we want them to be open, and humans that come across gates or through gates unescorted are not welcome and need to go away. And the, the visual presence of the dog is very deterring. And the visual presence of the dog, the fence, and the... I don't even know how to put this other than the look of, this house is probably inhabited by people that will kill me, If they feel threatened, go along. It's, it, it's make your house like your body when you don't want to be a victim. If you start walking around and looking at people, and you have to put yourself in the mind of the criminal, which is hard for a good person to do. If I want to roll somebody, take their wallet. If I want to grab a woman, pull her in the truck with me and drive off with her, and be a bastard prick that deserves to have his head shot off like that, who would I pick and why? And you'll look at somebody, you'll say, I even think I could take them, but I know, no, I, that's, there's, the risk reward calculation goes, oh no, that, that guy looks like he's gonna put on fire. That woman looks like she'll pull my nuts off if I try this. She might not succeed, but she's gonna try. And you'll see somebody that like, they're completely down in their phone. They have no idea what's going on. You're like, I just walk up behind him, even though he's bigger than me and hit him with a brick in the head. He'll never even know. He'll be out and I can just take his shit and go on my way. And so you'll identify that person and say, well, I don't want to look like that. Or you look at the person, they look really timid. They look really weak sauce and think, okay, this is a person I can just use intimidation to get ahead on. You might not be wrong, but that's who you're going to pick if you're the criminal. Then you got to look at your house the same way. Hopefully that helps. Moving on, plant propagation and seed saving to make your garden self-sustaining from Andy. Um, he said it's easy to do, but a lot of people don't know how. I would agree, and I think that the big thing – With gardeners, when they get into seed saving, they have this desire to, like, save a million seeds and store them for the rest of your life. No. The, the, the way I do seed saving, starting there, is I pick a few things that are really 
predictably do well. They are really easy to save seed from. And we use them a lot. That's priority over, over everything. So one of the things we grow every year, we grow a lot of the Chinese red noodle bean because the Asian long beans are immune to a lot of the disease pressure that we have in our, our, our area like rust and some other diseases that beans are really prone to. So if we grow your typical beans here, we tend to do okay with them. And I do have some pole beans and stuff that do okay, but what works best are the Asian long beans. So we save those and we just let some of them grow until they get where they start to dry out and make good seed. And then I don't even clean the seed. I take this big old long bean with this brittle thing and we just, Crack it in half so it'll fit. We put them in a paper sack. I mean, that's what nature does, right? They just basically, the ones that stay kind of dry until spring, they, they reproduce. Um, not trying to save seed from 50 varieties of tomatoes and worrying about cross-pollination, et cetera. Uh, Trombuchino zucchini is something we produce large crops of every year. Uh, we save that. Um, not always seed. I'm real big. I grow the purple sweet potatoes, the Japanese purple sweet potatoes. And uh, purple skin, by the way, not purple flesh. And if you save one potato through the, you know, through the year, or you take one potato and make a house plant out of it, you have slips next year. Keep it simple. And when it comes to propagating plants, unless you're going to specialize and go into and be doing it for a side hustle or a business, propagate the plants that are easiest to propagate. And then the next is just with really good horticultural practices. I don't know if you know this, plants are capable of self-propagation. They actually all by themselves make babies, right? They actually either make clones or, and, and Green Country uh, Agroforestry is asking real quick here, Murasaki, the ones with the white flesh. Yeah, it's like a white, yellow flesh, purple skin. Love those. Real thin skins. If you scrub them too hard, you peel them. That's how thin the skins are. Yeah, but plants actually just actually reproduce all by themselves. You, you go find a forest and you nobody planted it, and there's all these different diversity there, and you see the edge and all the the edge has the new growth, and it's the forest is advancing into the fields if it's not maintained by ruminants or other animals or humans, right? Plants actually reproduce. So start looking for the plants that self reproduce, and then identify and save those. So. I'm growing a yellow tomato. I don't even know what the hell it's called anymore, but it's a yellow cherry tomato and uh, more like a yellow orange color And from years ago. And it was just the one that always came back on its own. So I said, well, shit, I'm going to save some of those seeds. And, uh, you know, I, I, I save jalapenos because we use so many of them. They're so easy to grow here and Cubanel peppers. So I only really save about five or six seeds with real regularity and intent because they're the ones that produce the best for me. Um, and the other thing I've been starting to save is uh, uh, eggplant. Uh, the Ichiban eggplant uh, and uh, the new Rosso eggplants look like they're, we'll see, they look like they're going to really do really well. Assuming they do, I'll be saving those as well. Uh, and again, propagation don't try to be a specialist in propagation unless that's what you want to do, right? Unless like you want a, a whole thing about it. But find the stuff that's easy to propagate. The easiest thing for me to propagate here is uh, goji berry. You, I can't not propagate it. You know, it's spreading on its own. I got one this year. It's 
14 foot up in an apple tree, but you cut the green stems and stick them. And just, just do the stuff that works, but also do the stuff that you eat. There's so many people that grow so much food and they say they don't know what to do with it like it's a good problem. But then when you start talking to them about it, you realize the reason they have so much of it is they don't really use it. And so I'm at this point wondering if I made a mistake by planting so many damn fruit trees here. One, it's a tough climate for fruit. But two, gone so damn keto carnivore. At this point, I kind of, if I could go back to nine years ago when I started this property, I would do some things different, obviously. Anybody would, but I might actually plant the majority of the property into fodder trees and maybe into trees that are easily reproduced for an income because we just don't really eat a lot of plums or what have you. But I have been enjoying some breakfast blackberries lately, I will tell you that. So next up, I had a question from Tim. Tim said, how do you find... A decent CPA. And what do you ask them to know that they're a decent CPA? So I want to start out with fundamental reality. If you don't, if you do not own a business or have con, a complex investment strategy, just about any garden variety decent CPA will be all that you need. Because most of the things that a good CPA can do for you involve the 95% of the tax code that tell you how not to do what the 5% of the tax code says that you have to do. Okay. All right. So the tax code is like two 1980s major metropolitan area yellow pages and two more from another major metropolitan. It's, it's, it's a massive stack. And most of the stuff that tells you what you have to do is like, I don't know the phone book for Minersville, Pennsylvania with 1300 people. It's tiny. You do a little ham, little pamphlet you go get at, at the post office if they still do that, that tells you your tax brackets and all. That's what you have to do. The rest of it tells you what you don't have to do. But most of you are not in that category. So if you're just an employee, you don't need a great CPA. You just need a not stupid one. So generally, if you go to even something like an H&R Block and you find out, well, who's in charge? And not the person that sits at the desk and checks people in. Who's the actual, like, top accountant there? And you get to know them and you say, hey, can you just do our taxes? It'll be about as good as you'd need. If you are dealing with a business situation, what you need to do is talk to other people with like-kind businesses and, and talk to them about their CPAs. And... So if you are a small home business, but you have a significant revenue stream and significant opportunity to capitalize on that 95%, you don't need to talk to somebody that runs a warehouse-based inventory-centric business about what CPA to use. Because that CPA may or may not, you don't know, but may or may not be good for what you do. With a a business like mine, you want a CPA that is willing to uh, to push the limits a little bit and stand behind her calculations and do things like maximize the home office deduction, et cetera, under the, the Trump tax breaks and understand when they took away the salt limits, for instance, which is uh, or they they raised them uh, very high um, so that, you know, your property taxes are probably not going to be deducted from your your income anymore, even if you itemize like that. You want someone that understands, well, how do I backfeed the home office expense and prorate the electric bill, et cetera, into that square footage? 
So, I mean, if you were, if you were talking, if you're a home-based business, that would be a question I would, I would say, I'm talking, listen to this podcaster guy and he's not stupid. He's pretty smart. Uh, and his accountant, so don't say I said to do it because then they'll just tell me to you know, shut up. Don't know he's a podcaster. No, but his CPA, uh, and tax attorney, by the way, two, two and one, uh, is, is using some form, some form of calculation where, uh, they actually take some of the stuff that used to fall under your standardized deductions and then expanding it to things like electric bills and then backfeeding it through the home office calculation. What do you think about that? And you're going to get one of three answers, right? One is going to be, oh, you can't do that. Wrong answer out the door. Uh, two, you're going to get that. That's really interesting. Let me look into that. I didn't know that. I love that answer. That's a CPA that, li- that likes challenge and is going to, They, they turn it into a game. What can I do to better my client's return? That's a person I want, or the person already knows it. That they had to be gamifying it to get there because it's complex. But start with asking business owners who have business that are like yours, not the same as, but like in structure, size, and scope. And if you're in a local area, and as long as it's not Billy Bob, because Billy Bob's Bobby Bob's freaking brother, and everybody likes Billy Bob. But if there's actual choice in your market and you talk to 10 business owners and four of them give you the same name, ding, ding, ding. So it's more important talking to customers than it is to the person that wants your business, in my opinion. Next up, what we have thoughts on real homestead automation from Reed. Reed asked me about using Raspberry Pi and complex organizational homestead management. I'm not your dude. I'm not your dude. I don't know anything about that. If somebody's like, all you need is a Raspberry Pi, man, and then, and I don't care what you're talking about. I'm like, okay, boom. I hire somebody to do that shit. I don't know. I'm back to where we started with building a community based on the interest of individual members. I don't have a lot of interest in playing around with a Raspberry Pi to figure out how to turn my sprinklers on. I want to go down to the store and I want to buy a timer. It's designed to turn my sprinklers on and I want to connect electrical lines that run to solenoids that are also sold at the same store. And I want to read the manual and I want it to make sense. And I want it to say, turn these sprinklers on every Tuesday for an hour, turn these sprinklers on an hour later for another hour, and then don't turn them back on again till next Tuesday. That's all I want to do. And I know somebody's out there saying, Jack, if you only knew you could do all that more. I, I believed you. I don't have time. My number one means of automation in all the systems that I run is an $8.95 timer from Sentry. It's binary automation. On, off. That's it. On, off. Nothing more. Comes on for 15 minutes, goes off. Comes on for three hours, goes off. Comes on for 15 minutes, goes off for 45, comes on for 15, goes off for 45, comes on every night, every morning at 6 a.m., goes off at 7 p.m. Automation for my chicken coop, keep the light on, extend my laying in that time of the year, comes on, lights turn on in the chicken coop at 6 o'clock, lights go off at 9 o'clock, adds three hours of light to the chickens. I'm not saying not to do the other things. I'm saying if you're not that far, Start there. Other automation I use, mechanical timers for watering. Uh, the ones that I like, Orbit and what have you. You 
turn it to 15 minutes. The water runs for 15 minutes. The timer clicks and turns off. That way you don't come back four hours later. Oh, I forgot to set a timer. Look at the flood in my field because I've done it. So that's my level of automation, guys. I'm just, I had another question, didn't make the cut, but it's on 3D printers. I'm like, my 3D printer is still sitting there where the dude set it up on February at the workshop, did a great presentation on what 3D printers do, but didn't teach me how to use it. My buddy's supposed to come over and said, it's just easy. You just drag the file in and, okay, come show me how to do it. I, I have not had time. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I have and I've been exposed to and I like the idea of, And, and the reason I'm talking about this today is so you don't ever put yourself in a position like, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. Are you doing something every day that's moving your life in the right direction? That's what really matters. But that's automation for me, knowing that the things are going to run when they're supposed to. That's it. That That's what I do. I really want to do more. I think there's opportunity here. But right now, it still feels very pieces, parts. And the person that wants to monetize it is monetizing the people that can do it for themselves. And I think there's many things like that. Cryptocurrency is another example with lightning, et cetera. The person that's going to make a thing really marketable is going to be like you buy this thing, you install it, and it does the thing it's supposed to do. And if there's an instruction manual... It's one page folded in half so it looks like two pages. And the person reading it does not have to go on Google to figure out what half the words you use means. And you're smart enough if you use a damn word that the person would need to go on Google to figure out. that You explain the word and you say, I have to use this word because it's the only word I can use to explain what I'm trying to tell you to do. Because what I've learned about people that get really technical and learn about their Raspberry Pis and their GPU miners and their freaking lightning nodes and shit, they just say, oh, it's really easy. And then they throw out 60 words and 40 of them. You have no fucking idea what the person's talking about. And it actually is easy. But it's like all of a sudden I just switched to Spanish, right? Buenos dias, estás Juan Spirco. See, right? Like, and I just start rattling shit up. Or worse, I speak Spanish for three words and English for three words and Spanish for three and English for three. And while you're trying to catch up on the one Spanish word you knew, I'm already through the three English words that you missed. That's how a lot of y'all's technical bullshit, just to be honest with some of y'all technical people, that's how your technical bullshit reads. You guys send me an email and it's like, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, I know what the means, right? And I'm not exactly stupid. And it's why I try really hard in the areas where I've developed specialized knowledge, not to dumb a thing down, but to explain it with analogy. Because what happens is people... Once they learn this stuff, they talk like everybody knows what the hell they're saying and they don't. So the person that is going to hit a home run with monetizing homestead automation is either going to make a freaking product that's a, that ships in the mail and I plug it in and it works. And it might even be a custom product, right? It's an irrigation product. Okay. How many zones do you have? When do you want them to come on and off? And what are you, what are you hooking it into? What's your infrastructure look like? And you custom make it for that person. It's a lot of work, but it would probably work. What would be better is you buy this thing and it works. 
or you're going to have to put, you're going to have to instructionalize. I just made a word up. Y'all do it all the time, making shit up in the technical space. And you're going to have to instructionalize it. You're going to have to translate it into freaking redneck. If you can translate it into redneck, then we can get somewhere. I'll give you an example of this. In my former life, I was in the world of telecommunications, and I did a lot of work in the optical fiber market. And because of my background, a lot of people think I'm really technical. I'm very technical with infrastructure, not code. All right? So the lines and how you design the distribution and a little bit of the hardware and all, that's what I know. Anyway, I was at a, uh, a, a trade show, and a guy came up, and he was very pissed off. He was very pissed off because we'd come out with these optical test heads for our copper cable testers. So they would turn a copper tester for like, back then it was like 5E and CAT6, and it would make that tester capable of doing end-to-end optical fiber testing. He liked that. But his company had, and this guy ran a company, so he wasn't dumb. He just didn't get why. He thought we were ripping him off. And so we had, there's two types of fiber. There's multi-mode and single mode. And I'm not going to get deep into that, but one has a really thin core and one has a much bigger core, even though it's really small. And the multi-mode used one set of test heads and the single mode used another set of test heads. And he was pissed because the single mode ones were really expensive. That's because they require more expensive electronics. And so. I, I, I'm not getting through the guy. He's a big, big Georgia redneck. I'm afraid this guy's going to beat me up over something I had nothing to do with at some point. So I said, well, let's look at it this way. Let's say you had a great big pipe, and you had to be just a little bit outside of it, and you're going to shoot a shotgun into the pipe. What would happen? He said, well, all the BBs would go down the pipe and come out the other end. So, okay, so let's say you had a much smaller pipe. We had a rifle. That, that had a bullet smaller than the smaller pipe, and you did the same thing, what would happen? He said, well, the, the bullet would go in the pipe and bounce and come out the other end. And they're starting to look at me like I'm really stupid now. I said, well, what would happen if you took a shotgun and tried to shoot it through the narrow pipe? He said, a lot of babies would go on the outside. Some would bounce back and freaking hurt you. And I said, that's why you need two test heads. And then we had to explain a little bit more. But since I put it in his words, he was able to comprehend Something that if I would have started talking about angles of infraction and and uh, uh, the index of refraction and shit like that, he, he would have just thought I was speaking up over his head. And even if he would have believed me, he would have been like, screw this guy. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't have time to learn all these words. And he would have went and done something else and, and gone somewhere else. So if you want to take all of you guys that are technical people and you want to monetize that and you want to reach the unreached market, they don't know what you know and you need to put it in redneck. You need to translate it into a way that's easy to understand and you need to be brief when you do it. I understand that it's challenging, but that's what it's going to take. A little rant there. Uh, next, uh, a question about developing a bug out plan. When resources are limited and bugging in is not an option from Ricky. And Ricky basically said, yeah, I didn't move when I could have. And now I'm stuck here and I don't know what to do. And if it goes really bad, staying here is not going to be an option. First thing to do, Ricky, calm down. Unless you live like in the slums of San Francisco, maybe that's, I'm not saying definitely, maybe that's not true. The whole prepper porn novel stuff. I want you to. 
to gain something from the misery in Ukraine right now. In most of Ukraine, including the places that are all out war zones, as bad as it is, most of the civilians have gone along as best as they can with their lives. I brought you someone earlier this week, and the lady said, you know, right in the middle of a war zone, they said, why don't you evacuate? She said, I have nowhere to go besides we planted a vegetable garden. So we have convinced ourselves, especially in the prepper world, of this dystopian downfall road warrior world that's probably never going to exist. I'm going to tell you, most of you guys are never going to live out your fantasies of, uh, carrying a machete and wearing football pads and fighting people for the last gallon of gas. It's probably not going to happen. Um, so don't be so sure that you're not going to be able to bug in. He said he can't store large amounts of food, and it doesn't make sense to him to do it anyway. Well, dude, I can only help you so much. I'm going to tell you that you should be able to feed you and your family for 90 days minimum. And it doesn't all have to be what you store and store. You, you can have... 30 days of the food you eat all the time, another few weeks of the things you eat very frequently, and you can use the stretchers. And then you can have, you know, a few five-gallon buckets of beans and rice and rice and beans and beans and rice. And you can have that so at least you have kind of a get-by in the interim if you need to. And when when your friends and relatives come over, the ones that you're actually going to not kick out the door, and you're eating ribeyes, they can eat beans and rice. Uh, I do have family members who have said things like, well, I know where I'm going if something's going wrong. I'm like, I hope you're bringing stuff with you. And uh, even the ones I would let stay, that's that's what they're going to eat. They're going to eat dehydrated potatoes and rice and beans, and I'm going to eat ribeyes. And I'm not going to apologize because I've offered to help all of these people uh, for a long time. And uh, and, and their, their plan is, hey, uh, we'll, 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 we'll get to it when we get to it or we'll come to you. Um, the other side is you, the, the big thing with bugging out, I've done whole shows on this. You got to know where you're going to go. And the time to think about that is now, not later. And, and the reason people usually ask this question is they have thought about it. And the answer is they don't have one. They don't know where they would go. And so you need to develop a plan and I can't do that for you, but you need to look at what, why would you leave? What would be the point at which you would leave? I think that's the biggest thing that's a hole in people's problems is not even the where or the what, but the when. Because this is how needing to get out of a situation works. I don't need to go yet. I don't need to go yet. I don't need to go yet. I don't need to go. Oh, shit, I should have went back here. I can't get out now. I'm surrounded by wildfire. You can be, you can be bugged in and you can be ready and raring to go and you can have everything you need and you can have a community and a group, people with guns on the roof and shit. And you have a big enough wildfire situation. You need to leave. So you need to be thinking well out in advance. When is the cutoff for me? What would happen where I would make the call? And that helps you put yourself in the right frame of mind to run mental simulations about well, if I if that happened, what would I do right now when I have no plan? And you're like, Jack, damn it, I asked you for a plan. I can't give you a plan. I don't live your life. I don't have your resources. I don't know how much money you make. I don't know where you live. I don't know your answer to the first question. This is how you get a plan. It is ideal, obviously, to have a bug out location. 
not everybody can afford it. In fact, most people can't. Most people won't, right? So the best thing that you can do is try to find a friend or a family member that is at least two hours away who you think you can spend a few months with without having a knife fight with and creating a mutual exchange agreement that if shit goes really south, I can come here or you can come there. And then you need an understanding of what, what do you bring with you and what would the accommodations be when you get there? It might be you and your, your family of four sleep in a little bitty room together and you get your ass out the door just as quickly as you can. Or it might be, hell, we have a guest house and you're welcome to it. You got to figure that out. But it, it's interesting to me that the people that have said these things, these kind of probing things to me about, I know where I would go. They've never offered that. They know that there's, there's nothing they have to offer in return. So I would just ask yourself right now, if you had that ability to make that agreement, what would you have to offer in return and shore that up first? That's going to go a long way toward making it easier for you to bug in if you need to. And it's going to lead you toward having enough value to approach somebody with to say, Hey, can we make this exchange agreement? Because if there was a person in my immediate family that I felt this way about, that exchange agreement would exist, and it doesn't. And that's why we rely on other means about what we would do. This also requires an honest assessment of the natural disaster potential in your area. What is most likely to be the problem for you? So for us, it is fire in our late spring and summer and into fall sometimes, Um there is somewhat inherent limitation of the ability for our place to be undefensible in a fire, though. And, and part of that is because we have taken measures to make that uh, doable. But there is a potential for a big enough, seriously wind-driven enough event to burn everything down, and we'd have to leave. So that's an acute event. It could be somewhat widespread, but it's also going to be limited. Uh, tornadic storms are our biggest event. So most of our natural disaster threat here, is is limited in regional scope, meaning there will be resources available not that far away. When we look at something like, if you're worried about global nuclear war or something like that, stop worrying about it because if you can't really do something about it, don't worry about it because it doesn't do you any good to worry about a thing you can't do nothing about. If we get nuked, it's it's probably all over. I, I, that's like in the very, 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 very back of my mind. Remember being a kid sitting up at like, not, like late at night, scared watching reruns of Twilight Zone. Right. That, that's, that's where that threat is for me because I know that I don't have any effect on it and I'm not going to invest in a bunker and I'm not going to live, you know, a, a miserable life for a couple extra years while all of humanity's gone in a tube in the ground. You want to do that? God bless you. So you have to take this type of analysis of your life and forming that. Next, Andy said, what about a plan for what to do if your spouse dies? This is a very important question. Let me tell you how you do this first. You form the maximum amount of empathy with your spouse. You don't mentally kill your spouse. You mentally kill yourself. You sit down and you say, I was on my way to work today and a gravel truck killed me. My wife slash husband just got a phone call that will be most likely the worst phone call they'll ever have in their life. And somebody from the sheriff's department just told me, told them that I was dead. I'm now sitting here as a disembodied spirit 
even if you don't believe that, you do this for this mental simulation. Watching my wife grieve, what are the things that are going to be most difficult for her, for her other than the emotion that there's nothing I can do about or my husband what, that he's going to have? Things like, well, what about the kids? If you have a one-income family and they're the one that, that doesn't work. If you have a one-income family and they are the one that work, they're both a problem. Because that meant somebody was at home and that somebody's not there anymore. If you have a business, what happens to the business if you die? Is there any cash flow that continues? How do you maximize that? It's very sobering. And it's why when you, if you sell life insurance, you always kill the husband. Because women are more empathic than men are. And they feel more. So what you do, if you sit a couple down, you're selling life insurance, you say, Sorry to do this to you, Bill. You're dead. And Bill's like, oh, well, see what we would do. No, 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 Bill. You won't even be here to give advice. You just had a widow maker heart attack. You are dead, Bill. Debbie, what do you do? Because then they want to buy life insurance because a lot of the questions are answered with, I have no flipping idea. And the reality is in this situation, it's not everything about money, but money fixes a lot of problems. So life insurance of at least five years of income. And for some of you, you need a lot more. One income families, et cetera. But minimum to me is that five years of your annual income. And then a plan for all of these contingencies that come up. And once you build the plan for your spouse, if something happens to you, you go to them with that plan. And you say, you know, I was listening to this crazy redneck duck farmer survivalist guy, and he pointed out that everybody eventually fails the first rule of survival, which is they die. None of us are getting out of this alive. We're all mortal. We all die. Hopefully, you and I are going to grow old together, hold hands. Kids will be gone. Grandkids will be adults. We'll see our grandkids graduate. Maybe we'll even see a great grandchild or two in our life. And we'll kick off in old age. And when one goes, the other one will be like, see you soon. That's the best case scenario. But one of us could get hit by a truck tomorrow. One of us could get cancer tomorrow. This is a reality. None of us want to think about it. But because I love you, I decided to think about it. And I decided to think about what would happen to you if something happened to me. And so this is what I've come up with. I'd like you to help me make it better so that you'll be okay. And I guarantee you, if you do that, you're not going to have any problem when you say, okay, we've done, what if something happens to me? Let's do something. What if something happens to you? Always put your spouse first from both sides in every situation, especially when they're like this. And that's the way you're going to come up with a plan that works for you because your plan and my plan are different. My business is going to have a, a, an inflow of, of money for a significant period of time if I walk out of here as soon as I finish up and kill over and die. It won't go forever, but there's some. Some of you, you have a job or even a business that if you're done, it's gone. You also need to think like those of you that have crypto assets, how's that going to be handled, et cetera. Um, that necessarily, doesn't necessarily have to be done in a will, right? But you also have to think about what if you both die? Let's say that you have crypto assets and maybe one of the spouses is not that switched on, but those have a Your, your, your backup phrase works and knows how a wallet works. And if nothing else, once they have control, they can 
if they just don't even want to keep it, they can throw it on exchange and get money for it. But then the two of you are in a car together and a gravel truck hits both of you, and you, does your kid know how to do it? Do you have someone that can help out with that? You need to game this out because the person that has a half a million dollars worth of Bitcoin has a different concern or has an exist a, con, a concern in the thing that a person that has a half a million dollars in life insurance doesn't. Life insurance companies, when somebody dies, literally like, we need to know where the money goes. Who gets the money? The law is structured such that they don't want to not pay. Lots of shit insurance companies try to get out of a death benefit unless it's like murder or something and the beneficiary is the murderer. Like, no, it's like we need to get this check written and you need the money. Bitcoin don't care. So you need to think about it from your vantage point. All right, next up, what to do with meat, long-term electrical outage. It is called salt. And it's called smoke. And it's called biltong. It's, 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 it's jerky and biltong. That's your, your go-tos. Um, you can also do freeze drying so that you have a reserve before the power goes out. But I do want to say another thing. There is a lot of people in our space that are deeply into the prepper porn novels, Patriots and all that shit. It's probably the first one and what have you. And the power's out forever, man. Um, okay, most of society is going to die if that happens, and it's probably not going to happen. It probably is not going to happen. And so Kelly is saying canning, you've, if you've got the equipment, and yeah, you can... You can end up in a situation where the power goes out, it's not coming back on, and if you got gas or wood fire or whatever and you got a canner, you can just start canning now. And and that is, but you can only can so much so fast, especially dealing with the power out and all the other shit that comes with it. So things like freeze-drying, canning, etc. really need to be done in advance so that we don't need to completely rely on the things that we need to refrigerate and freeze. Now, where I was going with that, though, before Kelly brought up a very good point, the odds are the power is not going off forever. It's not the problem you need to prepare for. The longest I ever went out without power was 19 days, and it kind of sucked, and there was an ice storm. And everything was frozen. And it kind of sucked. But you know what? It didn't suck that bad. Do you know why? The generator. The generator, big stack of wood, big cache of propane, propane space heaters, fireplace, generator. And it happened over a Christmas holiday. And our son was visiting. It wasn't 07. I think it was more around 11, 2011 there, uh, Green Country Acres, right? Um, yeah. And the neighbors who were all, I mean, everybody that lived where we lived were in some level of prepper because of where we lived. And, uh, but the neighbors stopped by because it had finally gotten to the point where, um, you could get out, right? We'd already been a few days and it started to warm up and, the ice had melted off part of the mountain and you could get down the mountain without sliding to your death. And, uh, the, 
the limited snow removal capabilities had been used and they had opened up the roads and what have you and you could get to the gas station. And so they knocked on the door and I think it was the day after Christmas or it was Christmas. I don't remember. I think the day after Christmas and, uh, they knocked on the door and we were having like Christmas dinner too. A lot of you guys that do the big Christmas dinner, you do that like turkey and shit. You have it left over. So like we're having Christmas dinner 2.0, the freaking Christmas trees blanket and the football games on. Yeah. So they're like, do you guys need any? Nah, probably not. And I ended up giving them a couple of empty gas cans. And when I realized how few gas cans they had when they brought them back, I let them keep like half the gas cans and said, yeah, I think y'all need it more than us. So the, the, you need to be really planning for with the power outage is not losing everything that you have frozen or other things that you depend on electricity for, having the ability to bridge that gap. And the best way to do that, honest to God, still for now is a generator and a good supply of gasoline. And it's a much more practical thing than I just read this book, man. And the guys that had to eat their dogs and everything, man. And that's going to happen to us. Just relax. Relax. The same advice I give an entrepreneur. Make five dollars. Profit. I, I need way more than five. Yeah, I know you need more. Do a thing. Profit five dollars. Do that because you have to make five dollars before you make five million, right? So do a thing, make five dollars. Okay, you made five dollars. Great. Good job. Okay. Do it twice. You make ten dollars. Good. Start to form, develop a formula here. If you double it again, it's twenty dollars. Double again, it's $40. You get to a point where you can't double it, do something different because your plan is not scalable. And so you phase into these things. So if we get to the point where like the power could go out for two weeks and I don't give a shit. And if in that two weeks I can get another week worth of gas across that whole two week period, I still don't give a shit. You got 21 days stretch to a month. Okay, you're going to get through almost anything because this whole fantasy land freaking prepper world where people are going to live while everybody else dies and the cities are going to burn up. It's not coming. Go look at the worst places in the world and your fantasy doesn't match reality there. I know that's hard for some people to accept. Let's move on. Uh, and next up, perennial plantings for ducks and turkeys. Uh Ducks, not a lot of good perennials for them to eat as far as what this question was centered on. Now, perennial pasture plantings, clovers, alfalfas, medics, all good pasture majors in perennial grasses and clovers and medics and things like that. So that works really good for your ducks. They like pasture. A lot of it will come if you just effectively manage your birds because they're going to eat everything and your annuals need to get to a point where they seed and fall. And if you're regularly grazing, you're going to favor perennials. So then we can come behind where an area they've worked and we can do some light seeding and we can do some annuals that have more of an opening up of the ground and fertilization thing like purple top turnip and daikon radish and things like that. And we can do, sm this is the key, Don't perennial seed's expensive. Small amounts of perennials that grow the things your animals eat. 
When it, but this person was asking more about trees, bushes, shrubs, vines, and things like that. Ducks, they're, I have not found, and I've, I've, I grow uh, all of the Nick Ferguson fodder stuff, right? I've got some hybrid poplar. I've got some hybrid willow. I've got weeping willow. I've got mulberry. They'll eat some here and there when they really have to, but they're not heavy on it. Geese and muscovies, different story. You can fodder feed a goose or a stuffed muscovy duck the way you fodder feed a goat. I mean, they're all about that browse on the stuff like that. Turkeys, chufa, except it can become very weedy. It's an annual, but it's an annual with a tuber, and they'll actually work the ground and pull it up and eat it. Is okay. Um, some of them eat different varieties of acorn, but you, you got to look for the right varieties there. You only have the mast at certain times. You more with turkeys and ducks are looking at managing pasture and the civil pasture model is more about shade and what it does for you than for them with one exception. And it's, and, and I'm shocked that I, you know, after the years and years of trying to make it work that they don't really care uh, is ducks don't really care about mulberries, which is amazing to me. You would think they would love mulberries. If you throw a mulberry at a duck and they look at it and like, ah, I'm not interested. I'm not really interested. Um, turkeys love mulberries. If you have chickens, chickens love mulberries. So if you add chickens to that poultry, mulberry and persimmon. Um, ducks will tend to eat fruit that falls once it starts to rot and stink and be nasty. And I think they're less eating the fruit than they are the things that are eating the fruit. That's that's what I would tell you. Now, uh, Green Country Agroforestry says they destroy morning glories. I think morning glory itself, what we call a morning glory, the only girl flowers, are toxic. I don't know. Maybe they're not toxic to ducks, but uh, they're all toxic to humans. But the morning glory family includes sweet potatoes. And that is one of the most fantastic plants that you can grow for ducks and chick and everything. They all eat it. And uh, Ipomere aquatica, Kang Kong, same plant. Uh, Chinese water spinach, Asian water spinach, it's all the same plant. It's actually in the morning glory family as well. It grows extensively, but it doesn't really match uh, the question here that John's asking, unless you figure out how to incorporate it. So perennials for chickens and ducks, sorry, turkeys and ducks is more about good pasture. And then it's also about the fact that there is nothing either of those birds, in my experience, prefers to eat over a grasshopper. The grasshoppers usually come about a month from now, and they literally barely browse anything else. And the ducks literally form attack troops. I mean, like, like freaking... If you, if you've ever, like in the Northeast, we do deer drives. We have like 25 guys. You have five guys standing and 20 guys pushing the deer through the woods. Like they do that. They put flankers and end catchers out and then they push the freaking grasshoppers and the ones push and take whatever they can get. And the ones that push out ahead, the flankers come in like strikers on a football field. I'm talking soccer here and, and take them out, man. It's, it's, it's pretty cool to watch. So. A good quality ecosystem is going to have that. Or uh, if you have aquatic situation, your, your your slugs and your snails are going to eat that. 
you, you have to remember that both of these animals, while they are browsers and grazers to a degree, what they are in their heart of hearts is a predator. So if we're managing a cow or a goat or a sheep, we're managing an herbivore. Okay, we're managing either a ruminant or a browser. When you manage a chicken or a turkey or a duck, you're managing an omnivore that prefers to be a carnivore. And it eats things other than carnivore things when the carnivore things are not there. And if you doubt it, take a, 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 a big old pan full of all the different things your chicken or your duck love in the form of grains and, and, and treats and all that shit and put it down in front of them. And when they're all eating it, go quack, quack, get them to pay attention to you and throw a worm down and watch every one of those ducks quit eating them nummies and fight over that worm. Get your little pack of baby chickens. A lot of you guys just hatched your chickens. They're like quarter grown or whatever. And you're digging in the garden. You find a beetle grub. And it's too big for them to outright eat. And throw that. And in your head, you hear the Benny Hill music. Why? Because they want the fat and the protein. So what you're managing in an ecosystem for ducks and turkeys really is your insect population, the things that they can predate on. But the good news is good perennial ecosystems create that. So that's my thoughts on that. Next up, how to keep grass from grounding out your electrical fence. I didn't stick around long enough to get an answer from Mike, so I could be way off base here. But what Mike says is he is doing uh, paddock shift grazing. And every year he ends up having to do an awful lot of work with a weed eater on all his fence lines because the grass grows up on the fence and it shorts out the fence and the fence won't stay hot and then the cows can get out. And my guess is what Mike does is so Mike moves the cows over here and the cows are over here and the fence over here needs to be on. And since, you know, you're paying for electricity and I don't really want to get electrocuted over here, this fence is off because cows aren't here. I don't generally talk about shit I haven't really done much myself. But when the person saying it works is Greg Judy, I'm going to say he's probably right. Okay, so I have not done a lot of electric fence-based large animal rotational grazing. I understand it, but I haven't done it. But what Greg said is you need a really hot charger box, like something that we really, we used to say, like, be careful. We used to do utility work and you're working around electricity. That thing will knock your dick in your back pocket. You need that. You need that the cow touches it. Uh-uh. No. For a lot of reasons. One is so the cow says, uh-uh, no, I don't want to do this again. And then you don't turn it off. You don't turn it off because what happens is that grass is coming up and it touches that first wire and it goes, and you have that, a lot of people, if, you, if you've not used electric fences, you won't know this. They're not like, mmm, on. They're like, pop, 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 pop. There's an intermittent, they're on, they're off, they're on, they're off, they're on, they're off. And that's good because if you're ever dumb enough to touch one, it pops you and it hurts and you let go. And if it was continuous, you could convulse on it and get stuck to it. And then you got a real problem. 
Even with the voltage of an electric fence, if it's continuous, right? You get pop. Oh, shit. Right? So pop, pop. So that grass comes up, and the tip of it touches that fence, and it wants to ground it out. But it's one blade of grass, and it's like pop, pop, pop. And what happens is the end of that grass dies. It goes dry, and it doesn't ever get a chance to ground the fence out. You turn the fence off, and in a day or two, you can have a 100 blades of grass on it that were just about there but not quite there, or you were running it so they were died back, died back, died back, died back, and then you turned it off, and boom, they're all up on the fence, right? And basically, you're, cook you're cooking the grass. And so don't ever turn the fence off. And Greg says to do this for two reasons. One, so you don't ever put an animal in that field and forget to turn it back on. And that animal figures out it's off and then starts testing all the fences. You want an animal, anytime it touches a fence, be like, oh, shit, that hurts. And they get to the point like, I'm not even going to do this anymore. But the biggest reason is because of what you're asking about. So that would be my advice. Leave the dadgone thing on at all times. It also helps keep people that don't belong on your property off your property. Next up, how do you move to the country if you waited this long and now everything is so expensive from Coleman? I do want to say something about this because I think people are missing an incredible opportunity right now. In that, yes, property's more expensive than it's been in a long time. If you own a piece of property, though, this is not actually that big of a problem, especially if you want to move to the country. Because unless we're talking about buying an 800-acre farm in farm country where we're competing with BlackRock and Bill Gates for it. Uh, country properties are where the, I didn't say great deals, but the better deals still are. So odds are you can get more for your property than you could have three years ago. And you can roll that into your new property. So that's one thing, because I've talked to people recently where I realized, like, They hadn't even considered that. They were just looking at the price of this new property. They hadn't actually looked at the equity that they had. So this is part of what I have to do. You know what I have to do a show next week called the multifaceted world of poverty consciousness. Right? Because this is something that we all suffer from. Because even if we grew up with a, you know, parents that were uh, reasonably affluent, I did not. But if we did... We probably, if we're like well-adjusted young people or even middle-aged people who are now out in the world earning our own living, we went through the shit where we were a broke-ass kid out of the army like I was or a broke-ass kid out of college and you waited tables or if, well, I did was pack boxes in a warehouse. And in inside yourself, no matter how successful you are, a part of you is still that person you used to be because that's how humans work. You're still the 12-year-old that was afraid to ask a girl on a date, even though you'll ask anybody on a date now and you're 24, dude, that you're a player. You're still the 12-year-old. Part of you still is. You can never unbe what you were. So part of what happens is, well, I can't see myself buying a $400,000 house. But a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, you bought a $200,000 house and Dude, you already owe a full, own a $400,000 house. Sell it and go buy another one. You kind of re-enter at the same point you left. That's one option. The other option is, have you really thought about all your options? <laughs> Now, I know that sounds kind of double speak, but here's an example. So I had a woman come up to me at Exit Inbuilt. And I said to her, or she said to me, 
since you're like the master of exits, as I said, I don't know about that, but it depends on how you mean it. She said, I, I want to exit and, and I want to have a, a, just a, a country property. And I'm like, are you looking for like one of these intentional communities? Some of these people are like, no, I just want a, a place to live and have a garden and all. And I want to be outside the city. And we'll say, well, what do you do for a living? Because if you have a job and you're employed, right? Um, you know, then moving can be hard. She said, well, I'm self-employed. And we don't get, I'm not going to get into what she does, but she was self-employed. I said, do you make money or are you self-employed as in you're dead ass broken? You don't make any money. No, no, no. I make money. I'm like, do you make a reasonable living? And we talked to her. Yeah, she made a reasonable living. I said, go find a place with a house on it and put in for a mortgage and get a mortgage and buy it. And she said, what? I said, Just go get a mortgage and buy a place. And it turned out, like, at this point, she had transitioned from living on her own. She was temporarily living with her parents, kind of helped them out, but she still had her income. And I'm like, do you pay income tax? Because some of the people at this place don't. She said, yeah. I said, so you have multiple years of, of, of self-employment uh, tax returns. Yeah. And you can prove your income. Yeah. Okay. Go to your accountant. Get a letter that says they're your accountant and you're self-employed and that the, the two years of income that you're reporting is real. Even though it has to be real, you still need the letter to go with your mortgage underwriting. Find a place you want to buy that you can afford. Get a mortgage and buy it and move on to it. She was so wrapped up in the idea of buying a piece of land and building on it and how much harder it is to finance raw land and how do you build right now. Never even occurred to her she could just go get a mortgage because she didn't think she could get one because she was self-employed. So maybe that doesn't help um, Coleman here, but maybe it does. Have you actually considered all your options? The biggest thing to do is in any time when you're like, I want to live somewhere else, where do you want to live? What does that place like? Define it and start shopping. And what will happen is the person will go on realtor.com and see three properties and they're all too expensive. Ah, shit. That is not shopping for real estate. And I'm going to give you some good news, Coleman, and everybody else. It's going to be bad, but it's going to be good. But it's going to be bad. But it's going to be good. Some of you know who I'm, I'm imitating there. You were there. You were there that year at a TSP workshop. It was bad, man. But it was good. But it was bad. But it was good. I wonder if anybody in the live audience knows what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, you're about to see a real estate crash. The numbers are in for the last quarter for new home sales, and they're significantly down. The mortgage interest rate hike is like two and a half points over where it was a couple years ago. But when you do the math about what does that mean relative to affordability, it's like a the same price house will have to come down 23% to be as affordable, 23% in listing price to match the rise in interest rates. While we're in the middle of an everything shortage, while we're about to head into a recession, the real estate market that's so overpriced is about to drop. The bad news, all the banks and the Black Rocks and the Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum funded bullshit are going to buy all the damn property because nobody's going to have any money to buy the real estate dip because they're all bought all in and they don't have any money now. And you're not going to be able to get the, the cheap, stupid, cheap financing for a lot of people 
uh, with, you know, your FHA 3% down mortgages. The good news, if you've been a good aunt and you've stored away some wealth and you've got a decent bag of liquid capital, you're going to be able to walk in and lay it down on the table and make deals with banks on foreclosures or make deals with people that need to exit that you can make a deal with before they go into foreclosure with pre-foreclosures. And the overall market is going to come down in cost. And this is, uh, I predicted this in 2020. I wrote an article on it. It was called The Coming Crash. And the first trend in it was the crash of the real estate market. We are not in it. We're entering it. And if you think about it, there's no other place for us to go. You have rising interest rates, which reduces the the purchasing power of the of the buyer with 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 inventory beginning to stack in the middle of supply shortages where fear rules all this is so in 08 I said get your money out of the stock market it's about to be a bloodbath well what preceded it and it already happened before I started doing the show was the real estate bloodbath It's the same deja vu all over again, man. It's the same but different, man. We we are about to have some major, major problems economically. And the first place that it's going to kick everybody in the dick is going to be in real estate. Now, it makes sense then maybe if you can find a short-term situation for living that's comfortable and you have a shit ton of equity before this completely goes to shit, If it's right for you, please don't go, go to your wife. Jack Spierko said to sell our house. I did not. And if your wife asks me, I'm going to tell her you're a damn liar, Bill. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but maybe it's a play. And what you have to do is you have to do it in a way that if I'm wrong and the market doesn't crash, you just go ahead and bite the bullet and pay more for a thing than you thought you were going to. And you just put an interim place in your move. You have to have a hedge in every major life decision. So if you're like, we could do this and it might really pay off, then you do the thing. And if it doesn't pay off, it's still going to be okay. You have to start designing all the decisions in your life that way. I'm going to do this thing, betting on the most probable thing is this. If this doesn't occur, the thing that will occur is that. And this works for this and that. That's lifestyle design. That's non-brittleness. That's resiliency. And one more today, the five power tool must-haves for homesteaders from Bonnie. You need, so this was also, I think, cordless power tools. You need a drill. To me, the thing you need, now if we're going to plug things in, which that's not what I got out of the question. If I'm wrong, Bonnie, I'm sorry. But if you're going to plug things in, I'll tell you what's going to make my list. A chop-em-up saw, a chop saw is going to make my list. But if we're talking about cordless tools, I know you can get some now, some chop saws, like the DeWalt ones and all, but they're a little bit smaller and they're expensive. It's probably not going to make the list on the, the, the rechargeable cordless tools. You're going to want to drill. I would have to say of all my power tools, the one that I use more than anything else is a drill. So we can drill holes and we can drive screws, bolts, nuts, etc. I love an impact tool, but... I can use a drill for that, and an impact tool doesn't really make a great drill. And you want a Haas drill. You want something you can put to work, you can wear a battery out, slap a new battery in it, and you can keep working on it, and it won't burn up on you. So an upper-end drill. 
I also am a big believer, standardize on your platform. I like DeWalt. You like Rigid. That's fine. Go all Rigid, right? I like DeWalt. You like Porter Cable. I hope you like your tools to not last long if you work them hard. If you're a light-duty user and you want to use Porter Cable, I have no problems with that. If you're going to be a hard-on-your-tools guy, you, you will plumb burn up a Porter Cable drill if you use them the way I do. DeWalt still lasts a long time, so you need a drill. The next thing, so now I can I can drill holes and I can drive stuff. Now I need to cut stuff. So I think you you want a circular saw, a skill saw. Call it what you want to. So those two combined are probably almost every project I use both of them. And that's how I'm prioritizing here. What do I like? I might use some other stuff, but I'm gonna use a skill saw and a drill. Then due to its versatility and all the things that it does, I'm going to add a reciprocating saw, a.k.a. a sawzall to that, because there are things I just can't effectively cut with a circular saw um, that I can cut with a sawzall, and I can use a sawzall to fell small trees into prune trees and to do, like, demo work just so much that I can do with them. So I've got my drill. I've got my skill saw. I've got my um, my reciprocating saw. I'm going to tell you, unless you can really talk yourself out of it, an impact tool. Because I already said the drill will let me drive screws and stuff. You start using an impact tool, you don't ever, 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 ever want to drive screws with your regular drill again unless you just happen to have the little drill bit sitting there and you got to put one screw in. If you're working on a project, And when you put all your shit together and you brought it out, you forgot your impact tool. And you're going to have to walk back to the shop to get it. You're going to have to get on your little four-wheeler or your tractor and go get it or something like that. And you're going to put in five screws. You're going to use your drill. If you're going to put in 100 screws, you're going back to get your impact tool. It's just that much more comfortable. And then I would say it gets hard here. I want to say a, a, a jigsaw, but I'm actually going to say an angle grinder. A cordless angle grinder is unfreaking believable on a, now we're talking about a homestead here. So you're talking about being able to cut fencing, hardware cloth. Um, sometimes you have a thing stuck and the only way you can got to grind off a piece of metal, like, It does everything. I, see, I have a, a hard time narrowing it down to five because there's other things I want to say in there. But a chop saw, I use it like all my aquaponic stuff and all. I use chop saws like crazy. So even if it's not cordless, like just a $110 Hitachi, buy it from Amazon or Harbor Freight or whatever, decent chop saw is, is incredibly valuable personally to me. Um You know, I have everything, so it makes it harder to to say what I would give up. But your your you know your your basic assortment of all the, the power tools. One thing I don't have, and I need to force myself to buy one, is an orbital tool. Right? Um, I've only needed one once in the last two years, and I had a buddy coming into town like that week that had one. And it took me 10 seconds to use it and hand it back to him and not need another one again. But when you need one, there's not a lot of things that will, there's not a lot of things 
that will do the job you need the orbital tool for. So, I mean, those, those are my big ones, but I want all the tools. I want all the tools. And then I'll tell you the tool that you don't need, but when you buy one, you're going to be like, I will never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, ever not have one again. A good quality cordless framing nailer. When I bought the DeWalt framing nailer, it hurt in my wallet, right? Like, show me where the DeWalt nail gun hurt you. Right here. I'm pointing at my wallet for those of you that are not watching the, the, the video. It hurt me right here, but it only hurt me once. My God, my God, my God. And I have to say that there's a lot of projects that I did because I didn't want to look like one-armed Popeye that I would use sprues and an impact driver for because it was much easier to run sprues in to try, than try to pound nails. And when I got the the framing nailer and I realized how much nails cost less than screws and how much faster you go and what your time value is, it hurt in my wallet right here, Judge. It hurt me. Right, the wall hurt me here, right? But it unhurt really fast and it paid for itself. And it, it makes me want to fit it into the top five list. And if you're going to do a lot of carpentry work, you make your top five list have the framing nailer or make yourself a top six list because it's just that badass. And just, you know, use camel, camel, camel or something. Put it on the price alert list if you don't want it to hurt so bad in your wallet because it can. Let's take a few uh, starred ones here, and I'll see what I can do. Sue said, anyone have any advice on a good wood chipper shredder to purchase for a homestead? I saw some conversation going back and forth. I kind of went out for Sue here and picked up this one before we even started the pod, uh, the podcast episode today. Um, she wants to be able to do three-inch trees and, and down. Somebody suggested she leases, and she said, nope, she needs to buy Be sure you need to buy. We always think we're going to use things more than we do. And leasing one for a day might let you determine whether or not the big, giant-ass investment you're going to make, is it worth it? I have a pretty good uh, chipper shredder. It will handle, I think, up to two, two-and-a-half-inch stock. We don't use it very much. You know why we don't use it very much? Because if you have a long piece of wood that would make a damn good freaking piece of firewood if you cut it up, it'll feed right in there. And if it's little bitty pieces parts, you can show it in the, the shoot thing and that'll work. If you have like most of the slash that you cut off of like black locust or hackberry or whatever, you got to do a lot of work before it'll fit in the damn machine. It's not like the ones you tow around behind a truck that the tree trimmers use from Esplanade and whatnot. Those are great. You can throw everything in there. You can throw oak, and you can throw hawthorn, and you can throw pedophiles, and they just go right through it. Those ones you buy consumer level, oof. you might figure out that it is better to stock up your shreddables and lease once a year And if it, if it takes you five years under that model to pay back buying one, don't buy one. Don't buy one. Um, it's not very productive for us. And the other side of it is that 
you get so much less product than you expect. It's amazing. And it's, it's great that all this material ends up being this small little pile if you're trying to get rid of it. But if the idea is when I get the wood chips, I'll use the wood chips for mulch, you will. It's cool. It's amazing how little there is. Uh, if it's big work, like constantly clearing fence lines or something, if you own a tractor, you then you might want to look at like a forest mulcher. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. But I have a good friend that's going to bite the bullet and buy one. And I think he's maintaining something like 80 acres or something like that. And it's just not practical to do anything else. Uh, it's called a far, not a forest mulcher, a forestry mulcher. Duckweed, feed to poultry wet or dry uh, to, or add to regular feed. Can you feed it to other animals like pigs and cows? Pretty much everything will eat duckweed. Duckweed's another one of those things. Well, it doubles and triples and quadruples every day. Yeah, it's still when you dry it up, it's a very little bit tiny amount. So all I can tell you is how I feed duckweed. I take the duckweed out of the pond and I feed it to the ducks. I do that with Azola, duckweed, water hyacinth, all that stuff. I've never really messed around with drying it out and pelletizing it or mixing it in a feed. You can do that. It dries really fast, duckweed does. Um, and they probably will still eat it. Almost everything eats it. it. It doesn't taste bad. It's pretty palatable. But, you know, feeding it to hogs and stuff, I think you're better off just throwing it in their food and not worrying about your ratio. Uh, I don't think you're going to hurt anything with it. So the only time I really worry about a ratio of something that I'm feeding an animal is if it has a drawdown on the protein. So if it draws the protein content down, I have concern. If it doesn't draw the protein down, I don't worry about it. And duckweed has high enough protein, it won't be a, a protein drawdown. Uh, survival tips and other stuff says, what are some of your best area denial ideas? A bunch of beehives out on your fence line with, I don't do bees anymore, but if you do, um, you know what Michael Jordan said was you put bees out by your entry places and you put a cable on the beehives. Or you put some sort of mechanical actuator on the beehives that shakes the shit out of the beehives and pisses the bees off. And so now we have a problem out in Sector 7G now, don't we? Bah! And then we got angry bees going everywhere. People are scared of bees. Uh, dogs that we talked about at length earlier. Fencing in of itself is especially equipped with signage that says you're likely to get your ass shot if you come on the other side of the fence. One of the things we have to do, when people use a term like area denial, Again, they're in their head with the prepper fantasy porn, and you have a well-trained tack team. The only real aerial area denial uh, for a well-trained tactical team is a opposing well-trained tactical team that's in the realm of what you can do. You're not going to set up claymores everywhere and things like that. Uh, Noise-making devices are quite useful. Booby traps. Here, here's my problem with booby traps. There, there's a lie about a gun. If you get a gun for self-defense, you're 10 times more likely, 12 times more likely, 97 times more likely. Whatever the TV told me in the last sitcom where the kid got a gun, you're that many times more likely to use that gun on someone you love by accident than to use it to protect yourself. Uh, bullshit. Bullshit, 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 bullshit. And one more time, just to be clear, absolute total freaking bullshit. Okay.
now that we've got that out of the way, and we don't count suicides, and I don't count suicides because if somebody really wants to be dead and you don't give them a gun, there's lots of buildings to jump off of, razor blades to cut yourself with, pills to eat, etc. So I'm not going to count suicides in that. So if we count actually accidentally shooting your friend, then unless you're Dick Cheney, the odds are really, really low, and the odds that if you are attacked, it will help you are pretty high. Booby traps do not work that way. Booby traps, you are probably more likely to hurt somebody you didn't need to hurt, including your damn self. Don't be a statistic with it. So it's more about having an understanding and visibility. Um, if you are really worried about people uh, being a threat to you, probably the best thing you can invest in is night vision equipment. Really, because if you control the night, you control everything. Uh, and then motion detectors, it's more about knowledge than area denial. Though getting your ass shot repeatedly with an AR-15 will deny you the area fairly, fairly well. Um, pissed off jack donkeys that don't like strangers will be a pretty good uh, denial of area device as well. Christopher says, gardening, if a person who shall not be named left their seed starts out overnight, by accident and it frosted, is it too late to start a garden in the ground directly? No, depends where you are. A lot of parts of the country, it's actually a pretty good time for all your stuff that does direct so well, your squashes and stuff. Um, and then other places, it's really hard to start. Now, you have two things to worry about. One is the intensity of heat. And you got a little seedling trying to come up and something just beating the shit out of it with the sun and drying out the ground. So keeping it wet if you're in that situation and not overly exposed to solar radiation. That would be one of your issues. And the other is how long it takes to come to crop and how long it crops once it does. So all you need to do then is, is this an item that's frost sensitive? If so, then where where is your, your first average frost date? How many grow days do you have left? And how long does it take to get there? And if the answer is this is 110 days to harvest and you have 90 days to your first frost date and it is frost sensitive, don't grow that. So you probably can grow something. It's just figuring out what is going to grow well. A tip for dealing with the intense sun that we have in most of the country this time of year is provide shade for your seedlings. Even though you've planted from seed, treat them like you're hardening them off. One of my favorite shade devices is the little square bunch of holes in them water plant pots. So they're about yay big if you're watching the video. I don't know, six by six probably by about five inches deep, and they have millions of little holes in them. And it ends up, if you're, if you're crazy like me and actually count out a square, couple square inches and do the math, it's almost a perfect 50% shade. And so we put our plant there and we put our drip irrigation or our watering or whatever we're going to do to make sure it stays wet. We put our seed in the ground and we put one of those over top of it. And when that seedling comes up, it's in a 50% shade environment. And then what we do is we start, you know, I'm going to go when I get home from work and I'm going to remove them all for the end of the day and see how they do. And if they handle that well, I'm going to do that for a couple of days. And then on my weekends, maybe I'm going to go out with like four or five hours of intense sun left and, and remove it on a Saturday. Okay, now we're, we're in a place where the plant has gotten its roots down deep enough, push some mulch around it and go on with our life. You may not have to do that. If you're in New Jersey, you can forget everything I just said. If you're in South Texas, you better do that shit or you're going to bake anything you try to plant right now. 
And Christopher, we all know you're the one that actually did it. Next up and left the stuff out. Ron says, how do I know when a plant seed has been maxed for quality when saving seeds? I don't really know what that means. How do you know when a plant seed has been maxed for quality? I don't know. I don't know what you're asking me. I guess you know it's maxed for quality when you like the way that it turns out. Um, I feed fruit and veg to my to my food, says Michael V. Absolutely. I, I, I've moved way more in that direction. Ecomouse says, I tend to speak German Spanglish. Germ Spanglish. That's a, that's a tough one there. Uh, Ecomouse also says, Jack, in the past, you used to could and now probably could again. I don't <laughs> I think you're messing with some of my uh, lingo there, and I just don't remember what it was. Joe says, Jack, what's in the glass? I guess you missed it early on. It's beer. It's a beer. I'm having a beer to celebrate my appearance on Ron Paul's show today with y'all. It says, I have no guest. I haven't been able to keep up and drink it responsibly. Uh, but I think people actually want to know what kind of beer it is. Guys, I'm almost embarrassed. This Miller Lite. But I got to keep the carbs down, and, and I don't hardly ever drink anymore. So it, it's almost like real beer. Uh, <laughs> I think Martinson family here is trying to make a joke. It says FSF, and that means for F's sake. Uh, no Res Dawn Regen. Uh, so I guess he's saying no Red Dawn. Nope, you're not going to have any Red Dawn. I don't think that's going to happen. I have no problem saying sorry, no. So I think uh, – GMA Merkel there was talking about when people show up and think they're going to live at your house during the apocalypse. Uh, GMA Merkel said it also bugged out in 2012. Uh, I think that bugging out preemptively is the best way for most people. Uh, that's what we did. We went up to Arkansas. It didn't work for my wife, and she wanted to come back to Texas. And I'm like, it still has to be a place that would make a good bug out location, but it can be close to your family. And we, we it took eight months to find our place. And it was not a hard market to find real estate in. And you have to have patience. What I think a common theme is in a lot of stuff that we talk about, and I talked about it with Ron Paul today, is time preference. You need to extend your time preference and all the things you're doing and be thinking about how what you do today affects next year, five years from now, ten years from now, instead of what it does for you this quarter. As long as it doesn't kill you or destroy you in this quarter, what does it do for you over five years is, is like a minimum time preference in the, the major actions you take in your life. Uh, Ecomouse said, wildfires teach you to keep a go bag and shit hit the fan box that can be readily accessible. I agree. Um, you need to have a, 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 an evac plan for fire because fire doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about any of your other plans. It doesn't care about your guns. It doesn't care about any of that shit. We had a few weeks ago with as dry as it's been, one night I went out and I called my wife. I said, we well, need to be ready to leave. I'm like, get everything ready to go. I'm going to go find out if it's going to be a problem. Or not. We had a huge billowing smoke cloud and I drove through the neighborhood behind us and there were so many fire trucks. I thought I was going to have like an anime seizure. I've never seen so many whoopee lights going in my life and it was a small house fire. But I'll tell you what, I had some respect for Azel and the surrounding fire departments. They knew how bad the situation was. They were not messing around. They sent everybody. They sent everybody, and they, they did a good job. But, yeah, you need to be ready to go. I was like, make sure the dog stuff is ready and all, because if it's really coming, even if we don't go, even if I try to hold the line and use some of the fire breaks and all, like we need to be ready to be like, okay, we got to go now. 
and we need to be ready to go. Uh, Sue said, if you need to bug out, it may be incredibly difficult to travel safely. Have any ideas? Man, knowing where you're going, how you're going to get there in advance is, is a big piece of the battle. Sue, I would encourage you to go to the survivalpodcast.com and search for documentation. I did a whole uh, episode on documentation packages. I think I've run it as a rewind several times without the commercials. That's what you need to get into. That it, it, it covers everything uh, about that very question. Uh, best protein production in a 500-gallon pond. I have a 500-gallon pond that currently has goldfish. I'm experimenting with growing plants, but what protein can I produce in this pond? Well, carp are the most eaten fish in the world. Uh, you are limited in what 500 gallons will grow for you, but I'd grow bullheads. I'd find a local pond where you can catch little bullheads, you know, that are about four or five inches long, and I'd put them in there, and I'd train them to eat pellet feed, and you can harvest them about once a year. But just understand, you're looking at growing somewhere around 50, 50 fish a year. That's what you're looking at. You're looking at growing bullheads from, you know, three or four inch bullheads into about 11 to 12 inch bullheads. And so you're looking at something where if you have a full meal with other stuff, two of them is going to actually be enough to call a meal. Three would be more of a big man's meal, but call it two. So you're looking at 25 meals a year. You grow a lot more vegetation than you can grow fish at that scale. That's why I'm doing the aquatics course and pushing people into the several thousand gallon model. And with fish, fish are territorial and they can be aggressive toward each other. And even the ones that don't eat each other can damage and, 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 and mess each other up. Um, you need concealment and edge. I would fill that thing with cinder blocks all turned different ways. So there's little hidey holes in between them and in the little hidey holes. Put, put um, floor tile on top. So you're creating multiple caverns, and that gives everybody places to go be their own little fish and be away from everybody else. So there's not that constant agitation and just accept your limits and, and head count there. And, again, with the bullheads, let me tell you something about them. If you do not consciously put them in all about the same size, the biggest one will eat the smallest one, and the biggest one will have a huge growth spurt from eating the smallest one. And it will eat the next smallest one. And you may get to a point where you got one big bullhead. Or you may get to a point where you have like 10 big bullheads. They cannibalize each other. I put five, it was either five or six of them in a 40-gallon fish tank with all kinds of places to hide. And when I took that tank down and changed it, there was one really big one. So he ate either four or five of his brothers. The other fish you can use in there that will work really good are uh, bluegills. But this is another thing I've seen. There's this old myth. If you put the goldfish in a small tank, it will grow slowly and it won't ever get so big and it'll be rest- – no, no. However, fish do change their rate of growth in smaller systems. So I have fed the same amount of feed per amount of fish – in, let's say, one system that's 470 gallons, a six-foot round steel tank, and another system that is more like a 4,000-gallon Miyagi tank. And the growth rate differential is extreme, and I'm sure it has to do with the naturally occurring food chain that's in there beside what you're feeding. 
because as you get a bigger and bigger pond, you get more dragonfly nymphs and minnows and goldfish reproducing and predators eating baby goldfish and a plankton bloom and all of that. So uh, you will always be limited. You're not really in a, like we're going to talk about 500 gallon ponds in the aquatic system. I run them. But you're still really in the aquaponics realm in that your primary production is going to be vegetation. Don says, electric fence, more jewels, the better, and it cooks the grass. I agree. We kind of covered that already. Josh says, thoughts on first flush filters for rain catchment, needed or no? Needed is a strong word. I believe if you have a metal roof, the answer is really no. You're going to filter and, and purify any water you consume anyway. And Rain catch, you know, can be used for drinking, but unless you are using it for drinking, I don't even care if you're using it for irrigation. The issue is, though, you can get particulate matter that if you're using like drip irrigation and things like that can clog your tanks. So it's probably needed, no. Best practice, yes. Uh, first flush fill, for those that don't know, simply takes the initial water that comes off your roof and dumps it before it lets your reserve tank begin to fill up. Um, I, I don't know that we, ha- we do have some more. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go ahead and wrap up, guys. We're at two hours, and this is a long day for me because I had an interview this morning with Ron. Guys, I really appreciate you being with me. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there, you can help us out no matter what you eventually buy. And you can also find all of the stuff that we have available and we've reviewed. I'm going to real quick pull up the item of the day for you today. I don't always do this, but I'm going to do it today because we talked about power tools today. And I have a uh, a great item for you DeWalt users today. The uh, DeWalt 5-amp-hour batteries are on sale. Uh, DeWalt is expensive, but their batteries are really expensive. These guys are usually a set of these two five amp hours retail on them is like 239 bucks. Uh, they're on sale today for 149.99, 150 bucks. It's 37% off, $89 rounded off, call it 90 bucks that you can pick these guys up today for. You can go right now, uh, to the survivalpodcast.com if you're watching live or the main uh, the first thing that you'll see until we get the show notes up for today's episode, uh, definitely a deal. Best deal ever? No, but good deal on batteries during a supply shortage, yes. And uh, with DeWalt, I say if you need something from them, when they put it on sale, it's on sale so infrequently uh, that you probably should get it while it's on sale. Uh, and their sales don't last very long. I think the last time those batteries were on sale was, I think I ran that in February. Uh, but again, if you don't need those, it doesn't matter. You can always help support us. Just start your online shopping at tspaz.com. You can also become a member of the MSB. And I'm going to say it one more time. A lot of you ain't figured it out yet. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash exit, there just might be a sale on the members brigade right now. Might be, maybe the survivalpodcast.com forward slash exit. And you might save some money if you become a member on something that already saves you money and you help support the show. With that, everybody, hope you enjoyed today. I'll be back. we got a cool interview tomorrow. Uh, I think it's uh, someone I've been waiting to interview for quite a while. 
from Choice, which does crypto, and we're talking about crypto in general, Bitcoin in general, and how to do it with retirement programs as well. Uh, if crypto's not your thing, we'll be back Thursday with the expert panel Q&A. And Friday, we will have, of course, another episode out that You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. Show you a better way